Cincinnati jersey all on the block. We get it in. I'm in my Cincinnati house. Good day and welcome to the Cincy Slangin' Bearcat Basketball Podcast. I'm Coomer, joined as always by Hummer. Hummer, what's up, buddy? Well, we didn't get upset this week, so it's a great day to be a Cincinnati Bearcat basketball fan. It doesn't even feel like we're playing basketball this week. That's how long we have in between games. Ugh. The Bearcats don't play basketball again until Friday, which is oh. when they play in St. Thomas against Illinois State. And we'll get into that later. I know you're quite excited about that. these weekend games at the Paradise Jam. But before we get into basketball, let's let us not forget to congratulate the UC football team for their 20 to 17 victory over the University of South Florida. Hummer, did you have a chance to watch? No, uh, because every time I would switch to CBS Sports, it would change it to the Central Michigan game. Um, so you tell me what that means. CBS Sports Network is my mortal enemy. I cannot stand when any sport, basketball or football, ends up on that network. Um, so, yeah, I, I didn't get to see much of it either. It did seem like it was quite the nail-biter. There's a lot of a lot of things to work out there on the football side. We're not going to be getting into that today. Instead, Hummer, it was a very interesting week around the American Athletic Conference from a basketball standpoint. I want to run through some of these results. You can listen to some of these matchups. I'll tell you exactly what happened. And let's just go ahead and and react to the week that was for the American Athletic. South Florida, they lose to Uwe Pooey, I-U-P-U-I. 70 to 53. Memphis then loses to a ranked Oregon team, 82 to 74. With Wiseman, keep that in mind. That game had Wiseman in it. Keep let's keep that in mind. Wiseman did play, and it was one of the first games that exposed how young Memphis is. The defense was very undisciplined. They gave up a lot of open shots. Later in the week, UCF loses to Miami, Florida, seventy-nine to seventy. East Carolina. I'm not sure I should even include them in this list. It's going to be a rough year for them. They lose to Appalachian State, sixty-eight to sixty-two. Woof. UConn gives up 96 points to St. Joe's and loses 96 to 87. Houston loses at home to BYU 72 to 71. And the very last game of this week that we're going to consider Connecticut defeats number 15 Florida and salvages the week for the conference. Hummer, what's your reaction to the week that was? I think you're forgetting one. And at UCF also defeated our upcoming opponent, Illinois State. Um, well, those aren't those are not all the matchups. These are what I why what I consider to be notable results. But it is good to know that that UCF did just play Illinois State. What was the score of that game? Uh, 67-65. It was Ugh. a tough week. Tough week for the conference. And I, I, I put out a poll to our our Twitter followers basically asking does it change your expectations in terms of what we're going to what this conference looks like at tournament time? How many how many teams do you expect to get in? I know there was quite a few squads that folks were a little bit unsure of. And the teams I'd put in there were UCF, 
they lost quite a few players. Uh, UConn, that's a team with a good coach that people thought might have good long-term prospects. Breaking news alert. SMU has defeated the mighty Evansville. 59-57. Wow, a huge up. That's like beating the number one team in the country. So SMU is clearly here to stay. But yeah, it's, I think it shows that outside of Memphis, outside of UC, and outside of Houston, and even Houston now we have big question marks about. But the conference may not be that strong. The The talent below the top three teams looks like it It may need some work. Yeah, and it's 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 a shame looking around the, the league because Memphis now officially has lost Wiseman, what it seems to appear, or what it appears to be for this entire season. Uh, whether you agree with that or not, um, the NCAA with their ruling that they will, in fact, move forward with his ineligibility. Uh, oh, I think I don't think he's going to miss this entire season at all. I think you think back. they're going to reinstate him. Uh, he's going to serve a suspension. You know, he's going to miss a, a few games here. I don't know how long that's going to be. Probably going to end up being in the ten game, ten game range. That's my best guess. And he'll so he'll return. He'll be back that? for Equates conference about, play. About two months. So come back in January. Yeah, he'll be back for the conference play. We're going to have to deal with him. We're going to have to deal with him, but let's face it. If he's gone for two months and if his suspension involves not being able to, to maybe practice with the squad, you know, he's going to miss a lot of on-court uh, team bonding. And he's only he's a one-and-done. He's going to the NBA next year. And so that's definitely going to affect their play getting into getting into conference play. It's like taking a look at the Cats and saying, well, you know, we're expecting to be better at conference play because we've had that much time, you know, Granted, we might be going through the same situation, which we'll touch on later here with, with Jaron Cumberland, but you know, it's it's still not an ideal situation for Memphis to be missing in for two months when the non-conference schedule is really there for you to, one, build your resume for March, but two, get you ready for conference play. So it's 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 a shame they're going to lose him. I think you're right. I also, it's it's at, it's upsetting to see Houston struggling too this, this early on as well because Let's face it, the conference is not strong. It is it is weak. And, God, what did you call them? Ooey-pooey? <laughs> Ooey-pooey is running through the conference. Uh, they, they, <laughs> they beat USF. South Florida did lose one of their best players right, to the start, right before the start of the season. I'm not concerned about Memphis. I think Wiseman comes back. And even without Wiseman, the talent level There's, is exceptionally yeah. high. They're going to be a good team. Uh, Houston, same thing. I know that's a tough loss to take at home to BYU. But as, you, as you've as you seen across the board, early in the college basketball season, it's really not that unexpected to see wild upsets. I mean, we just saw Evansville beat Kentucky a week ago. So taking so a tough satisfying. loss, not the end of the world. But I it does leave lots of questions to be answered about the lower tier of the conference. And what it tells me is, we need to rip off some wins preseason with this tough schedule that we have. We need to find a way to knock off Norwood University. We need to find a way to knock off, make sure we knock off Iowa, make sure we find a victory against Tennessee. We have opportunities to boost our resume early in the year. We're playing a tough Vermont team, and I think it's that much more important in a year where the depth of the conference may not be there. I don't think we can say that definitively, but I do think the initial indications are this is a very top-heavy conference. Well, I also think you're you're also missing some of the other key components to this this run for a good seat is that we 
we also can't lose to some of the competition that is coming up. Uh, you know, when we're talking about the, for instance, the Paradise Jam coming up here, the slate of teams that we have that are attending that, I think we're we're definitely by far and away the highest on the Kempom ratings. Uh, currently standing at 23. You know, Hummer, we'll save that component for when we get into the schedule here at the end of the podcast. I do think the most pressing issue for the University of Cincinnati Bearcats basketball team right now is the situation with Jaron Cumberland. Much was said about this when he missed the game last week against Alabama A&M. But since then, we have not heard much. And I know that has to do with the fact that we have such a long layoff in between games. But I think there's reason to be concerned that this could potentially turn into an extended absence for Jaron Cumberland. Um, When asked, I want to take people back. After the Ohio State game, John Brannon said the following. For Jaron, he's got to get in shape. Practice gets it there, and players don't like to hear that. Practice will enable you to have success in games. Him and I are learning each other right now. That was some incredible foreshadowing for what we had to deal with late last week against Alabama A&M. And I, I want to add one more thing, Hummer. When asked if Jaron Cumberland would miss more games, John Brandon said, that's the great part about a coach's decision. I'll have a chance to reevaluate it going forward. Not before I, before I get into my thoughts on this, Coomer, what are your thoughts on the brand, this Brandon situation. I, I think that if John Brandon was having a difficult time getting the effort and commitment from Jaron Cumberland in practice, and he wasn't able to get through to him just through conversations, through setting the tone in, in practice and punishing teams that Jaron Cumberland was practicing on based on lack of effort and execution, if those things weren't working, pulling the Alabama A&M benching card is an easy decision. I like it. It's, it's, it's an opponent we're not going to lose the game to without him. You're not sacrificing our long, long-term prospects by doing this. And your, your hope is that you're lighting a fire under Jaron that, hey, your effort level, your buy-in to this team has lasting repercussions to our overall success. We need you. We want you. But if you're not going to commit, if you're not going to give the effort that we need, you're not going to be playing basketball games. The concern, however, is if this method doesn't work, the only well, the, the only response at that point is he has to sit out more games. Where do you go from here? We need Jaron Cumberland to win games. Look, you know, and I'm I'm all about this decision with which Coach Brandon. I think that if he if he wants to run the system the way it's going to be run, you cannot slack. You cannot give up any ground to any player any one player so if, if it takes a, if it takes jaron cumberland a month that he has to sit out well you know what that's a that's a shame on the player for having that mentality but i definitely think that that brandon needs to stick to his guns on this because moving forward when you're going to get players to come in here they're going to have an expectation that you're you're going to have an expectation that you're going to practice hard you're going to practice hard every day and, and you're going to play and you're going to play that's going to show in the games he said it repeatedly that he is he's pretty in my mind consistent about what he's saying. If you're a freshman, your job is to play defense and that's how you're going to get minutes. Look at look at what's happened with the freshman playing. They're playing defense, they're getting minutes. And but if you're going to be bringing in guys who's coming in next year, we got the Madsen twins and we got um 
Mike Saunders Jr. Mike Saunders Jr. Do we want to sit there and say, Mike Saunders Jr., you're this great talent. Uh, you don't have to work hard because Jaron Cumberland didn't do it last year. Brandon is setting an example. He's setting the tone. And frankly, I'm all about it. And look, this year, in some people's minds, we're a 10 seed. I think we can potentially make the tournament a hot take or whatever you want to take this as. If this team plays well, they can do it without Jaron Cumberland. Mm, we're going nowhere without Jaron Cumberland. And you mentioned Mike Saunders Jr. Of course, when if, when an 18-year-old walks in the door, or an, actually I think in a 17-year-old in Mike's case, you clearly have to set the expectation of what the buy-in, what buy-in is needed long-term. That for you to get minutes, we need this type of effort on the defensive end. We need this type of o- offensive execution, and we need th- this type of day-in, day-out effort in practice. You and I are speculating right now. We actually don't know what the what the real issue with Jaron Cumberland is. We think it's effort level. We think it's conditioning and buy-in in practice based on reading the tea leaves. But at the same time. Jaron Cumberland going into this season is a three-year major contributor to UC basketball with a great season on track to be a top five scorer all time. His commitment level to this program is the proof is in the pudding and in the production. Jaron's been incredible for us. Is that that commitment or raw talent? Is it being in the right place at the right time? Is it being a product of a Cronin system that allowed him to thrive in an Allen Iverson type way where practice, who needs practice? You know, and and frankly, that's honestly not we're learning that's not that's really not Jaron Cumberland. It it worked for him under Cronin, but it's not gonna work under Brandon's system. So I'm I'm okay if Brandon's gonna sit there and say, Look, Jaron, if you're not gonna play in my system, you're not gonna play. Uh, I'm not, I'm not okay without more facts. I'm not okay. Making definitive decisions like that. I want Brandon to set the the tone. I want Brandon to set the tone for what he needs the culture of this program to be moving forward. But he also doesn't have a player here that's with him long-term. He's not trying to teach him the way it's going to be for year two, three, four. Jaron Cumberland's gone after this year. And we have incredible memories with this player. He's been immensely important to winning AAC championships, to getting to the tournament, Frankly, we lose the Nevada game because Jaron Cumberland fouled out. He was a sophomore that year, and he was critically important to our success on offense, as even then he was the only player we could really give the ball to reliably to create his own shot. Maybe if he practiced harder, he wouldn't have fouled out. Erroneous. <laughs> Just erroneous on all counts. We don't know. You can't get as good as Jaron Cumberland is without practicing hard. So I don't want to go too far in in slandering Jaron Cumberland's name, I think that Brandon needs to find a way to make this relationship work, even if he's not necessarily getting exactly what he would be expecting from a conference player of the year. He's well, been here minute. for three I mean, years. His production's we, incredible. You don't. But just we heard sit- it from another. We heard it from another talking head. If I'm not mistaken, it was Terry Nelson talking specifically about how Jaron Cumberland is treated in practice under Brandon versus how he was treated under Cronin. So if we're reading the tea leaves correctly, which it's it's really hard for me to say that we're we're not reading them 95% correctly. That that there could be a, a foot injury in there that is making something in there, you know, that's that's maybe something we're not understanding. But hearing what we're hearing that he is treating, it seems like he doesn't like it. The fact that we saw him with 
a lack of enthusiasm against a really bad opponent in Thomas Moore, the the comments that come from Ohio State, I really am led to, to believe that Jaron Cumberland right now is not being a team player under the Brandon system, and he's not happy. And unless there's a, a major change in attitude, he, so you're, we you're, might have to live with reality that we don't have Jaron Cumberland this season. You're comfortable having Brandon bench Jaron Cumberland for the rest of the season because of an alleged bad attitude that Brandon has not come out and said he has. If that's the case, if it's a truly a bad attitude situation, I think Brandon needs to stick to his guns. He needs to run this program the way he wants to run it, and it's going to be fine. The other players have seemed to bot in. You're not seeing this type of issue from a Keith Williams. You're not seeing this from a Trey Scott. You're well, seeing those guys come out there hustling. Jaron Cumberland was the best player on the court most of the game for Ohio State, at least for the Bearcats. Yeah. Jaron Cumberland was the best player on the court in the Drake game. His contributions are undeniable. He's an oh, offensive. They, they are. He's an offensive force. Now, if his rotations aren't up to snuff, if the day in day out effort is not exactly what John Brandon expects, I'm not comfortable seeing a senior who has given so much blood, sweat, and tears to this program over three years. I'm not comfortable watching him get benched for an ex- extended period of time. I hope that's not the case. It's all speculation at this this point, but fundamentally. John Brandon has got to find a way to come to an understanding with Jaron about here's what I'm here's where you're coming short, coming up short. Here's what I'm expecting from you. Here's how we get this to work going forward because we need you for for the UC Bearcats to accomplish what we think they can accomplish in the 2019-2020 season. Jaron Cumberland has to be on the court. I promise you if he's not, this team probably does not make the tournament. Point blank. There's very little shooting on this team without him. There's very little shot creation. This team doesn't make the tournament without Jaron Cumberland. He has I mean, to be I'm, out there. I'm not disagree. We probably you're 100 percent right. We do not make the tournament, but you know, I just I just can't come out there and say that I don't think what Brandon's doing is is right. Maybe yeah, if you're I know our end goal obviously is to make the tournament, but I think Brandon has longer term goals in the fact that it's it's building a culture and it's building a program. It's it's a whole new world under him. I need to. And I, need, I think it's unfair to, to come out and say Brandon needs to compromise. I think Jaron Cumberland, as a young man, needs to be the one who compromises. It's a life lesson that not every manager that you're going to have in this world is is going to be roses. You're going to have different managing styles, and you got to do you got to play to that in the real world. Right, but a true leader doesn't just impose his will with no no collaboration or no. Um, compromise if John Brandon is the leader that we think he is he too finds a way to compromise and and make this relationship work and that's what I expect from it moving forward let me put a bow on this though let's let's stop reading tea leaves I'd like to see reporters on the Cincinnati beat figure this out get more out of John Brandon why is Jaron Cumberland not playing and what needs to be reevaluated on a game-to-game basis that's a very good point they're being soft on him they're being soft right get some answers Go after Brandon. He does need. I think he does. Did, he owes us some answers. If if Jaron Cumberland's not playing in the next game, we owe we are owed more than coach's decision. But yeah. Hubbard, we've we've definitely spoken enough on that topic. I thought <laughs> we'd have some fun this week, given the given the long layoff in between games. There's only only so much X's and Oing and and. Are you get uh, jealous watching all the other teams play this I'm week. Jealous, yes. So jealous. I'm jealous. <laughs> 
But I did I did think with the way Javen Cumberland has been shooting the ball, it made me reminisce on the great shooters of the last 20 years for the Bearcats. So I thought we'd do a do a fun list today and run through the top 10 Bearcats three-point shooters since 2000. Now, do you want to do this 10 to 1 or 1 to 10? Do oh. we want to leave suspense? Oh, there's suspense. Do we just want to, we just want to start hard? There's suspense. We're going 10 to 1. So let's kick things off here. Let's first give out a few honorable mentions. Guys who did not make our top 10, but we thought deserved mentioning. Do you want to go ahead and mention the first? I'm going to mention him. This guy's a, in my mind, he's a legend. James White. Oh, he's absolutely a legend. He's one of the greatest dunkers of all time. Oh. Of any, you know, college level, pro level, he's an absolutely incredible dunker of the basketball. But surprisingly, a, a much more efficient three-point shooter than I remember. James White made 100 three-pointers over his career, and that's in an era of basketball when three-pointers were not emphasized. And he shot nearly 35% from three. So James White gets a shout-out on the honorable mention. Yeah. I'll very, throw out the next one. Very impressive. Honorable mention goes to Justin Jennifer. Justin had an incredible season his senior year, shooting nearly 45% from three. And he was Ooh. a lifetime career three-point shooter with the Bearcats of 39.8%. The biggest issue with Justin Jennifer, though, was he just did not shoot enough three-pointers. I know seasons, his freshman and sophomore seasons, you can largely chalk that up to a lack of minutes. He wasn't quite ready to play at this level when he first got here. But when you can shoot 44% from three, you have to find a way to get more three-pointers up that year. It's almost a, sh a shame because it's probably more of a result of that system as well, uh, where maybe he maybe he does better, you know, playing on a team like this if he had one more year of eligibility. Where if you're open, you have a good shot, you take it. Mm -hmm. uh, don't just look to get the ball to one person as your offense. Right. Well, if he if he shoots it more, it, his percentage will definitely dip below forty four. But if the guy is still shooting 38%, you know, if you lose six percentage points, but you're taking, you know, 50% more shots, we're we're a better offensive team for that. So it's just something that I think in the John Brandon era will actually be better um, in terms of uh, our, our players will contribute much more offensively because of the style of play and because of the offensive philosophy. And our, our so final that, our final honorable mention, who you got? Troy Copain, who's... 23 years old if, if is that correct right now he's 23 years old which really does tell you how Surprising. young he was with the bearcats yeah you made a good point earlier when we were going through this list that maybe that's one that that cronin probably should have redshirted and maybe would have been way more devastating as he as he matured and grew it would but be he, the, he it would be the sean kilpatrick method right bench him yep you know put him on the bench that freshman year let him fill let him fill out a little bit let him develop some more skills and by the time he you know works into his senior year you've got a just awesome point guard yep but he shot uh he made 154 three-pointers in career shot 33 percent you know well above well not well but little on the light good side. enough little on the yeah. light side but good enough you're still efficient that you're you have the green light to shoot a good a good honorable mention but let's get into the top 10 my number Ooh. 10 our number 10 three-point shooter since the year 2000, Tony Bobbitt, 127 three-pointers over two years at 37.5%. You have any Best lasting name. memories of Tony Bobbitt? 
He is the best name of any Bearcat. He's a Bobbit. <laughs> I, I remember Tony Bobbit his senior year just going completely bonkers from the three-point line during the two tournament games. Uh, specifically in that first-round game, we played an opponent who was far inferior. I believe it was Middle Tennessee, Eastern Middle Tennessee State, a team along those lines. We ended up winning by single digits. It took five Tony Bobbitt three-point shots. Uh, he was a guy who could fill it up. Didn't always have the best shot selection. He was definitely kind of a loose cannon. I was surprised to see, because I had completely forgotten, Tony Bobbitt had an NBA career. He played for the Lakers, about 25 games for the Lakers. Um, just a, a surprising factoid about Tony Bobbitt. I did not remember him being an NBA player. Who do we have at number nine, Hummer? Number nine, Cashmere. Right. A fan favorite and just a, a reliable four-year shooter. Cashmere made 186 three-pointers in his four-year career with a percentage of 34.9%. I felt like you know you could always just rely on Kashmir, right? Yeah, um, I mean, he is what he is. And it, it, did we say this earlier? This list is from two thousand to the last twenty years. Right. But yeah, Kashmir, right? Definitely a fan favorite. A lot of you know, a lot of good memories with with Kashmir. His shooting percentage was good. Good point guard. We re re relied on him a lot bringing up the court. But I'm surprised that. I mean, I guess that's our stats, but I'm surprised that the next guy is so low on the list, <laughs> considering when I see some of the other names that uh, that are going to crop well, up let's here. let's talk about it. We've got number eight. We've got Jacob Evans the third, 174 three-pointers with a 37.7% clip. You think Jacob Evans should be higher? I do, but you know we haven't gotten to some of the names that are above him. And just with his contribution, though, you're talking – you know, it's good. You talked about what Jaron Cumberland was responsible for, you know, in la with last season and, and even the season before that with the loss to Nevada. Jacob Evans was that presence on the court that Cumberland is expected to be this year. And Evans was that guy you wanted to see with the Rock at the end of the game, his junior and senior year. You wanted him to have the ball. Well, he never had a senior year. He left after his junior year. So his production there was in three seasons. I always thought Jacob Evans, anecdotally, I just remember, I guess I remember him being far more inefficient than he actually was from three-point range. He struggled with some wrist injuries in that final season with UC, and it never felt like he was as consistent as he could have been. But he was a knockdown shooter while he was here. He struggled with the shot more in the NBA, but... Jacob Evans was definitely one of the better three-point shooters we've had since 2000. Our next entrant, and... Do we want to skip him and, and come back? No, I because think... Because this I one's a, a big surprise. I think he's our most controversial. I think he's our most controversial because he's only played three games with the Bearcats. Number seven, <laughs> Javen Cumberland is the seventh best three-point shooter since 2000 for the Cincinnati Bearcats. And frankly, I can only see him move up from here. I think this is a good time to mention that this list is very uh, – what's the word I'm searching for here? Uh, qualitative. <laughs> Look, we're using the numbers. Not, Only as a guide, though. Here. It's a nice <laughs> mesh of the eye test and the numbers. But Javen Cumberland is definitely going to be one of the best. His stroke is pure. It's money. His stroke is so pure. It is He's money. money. It's – 
it's honestly a shame that he's only going to be a Bearcat for one year. I know. This is a guy who should have been recruited as a freshman. And we probably, I don't know. Honestly, actually, we don't know. This is all conjecture. But you have to imagine if he's excited about playing with his cousin this year, he would have been excited about playing with his cousin four years ago. I actually, hot take, I don't think that the cousin thing is as big of a deal as people make it. He was prepared to go to Michigan next year. Sorry, he was prepared to go to Michigan this year had John Beanline not left for the NBA and had Jaron Cumberland not decided to come back to UC. Without those two things happening, I don't think Javen Cumberland's a Bearcat. Thankfully, well, he is. the point. His, his cousin comes back to Cincinnati, yeah. so he's ready to come to Cincinnati. He was prepared to play without him, though. Like, he was prepared. Jaron was going to be coming to Cincinnati most oh, likely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, he I was get, already I, I prepared to go to Michigan. I don't think that it's as big of a deal as people make it. I'm happy to have him. I think he's one of the best three-point shooters of the last 20 years, which takes oh, us to number six, Farad Cobb. 127 three-pointers made in two years with a 36.6%. I don't have a ton of Farad Cobb memories. I know he was a knockdown shooter. His career, in my opinion, was fairly uneventful, but I may be, I may be forgetting some moments. Well, let's, let's just be honest. Most of these memories consist of hearing Dan Horde calling a, a inside-out pass to the corner with a wide-open three. You know, that, that's what I'm hearing. Every time I, I see these guys on the list, I hear a Dan Horde call going going through my head. Uh, I think the next one to me, and this is this is probably my most controversial slash uh, going to take some flack for uh, comment here. We have Deontay Vaughn as number five. I did not have him this high on the list. Uh, Coomer is shaking his head at me right now. He's like, get get the hell out of here, Hummer. Uh, He's tied but, for the all-time lead in three-pointers made. He made yep. 313 three-pointers, and he yep. shot a respectable 34.2%, and yep. that was on a team that had very little talent. He yep. carried far too big of a burden on those teams. And if yep. you if you lessen, if you if you reduce his usage rate and he's able to be more selective with his shots— Deontay Vaughn shoots a higher percentage and is remembered in a much more favorable light. And yeah, I think that's probably the issue. And that's probably what I'm looking at. Steal my thunder there. (laughs) I'm thinking that if you're looking at Deontay Vaughn and you're putting him on a team filled with, you know, well, actually he probably thrives better in the team with Sean Kilpatrick and Yancey Gates, to be honest, Uh, that would have been a, a nasty combination. But when you had teams with Jacob Evans, uh, the Gary Clark, you know, the problem, Justin Jennifer, there's maybe not a whole lot of room where those guys are better shooters than him, that he takes a back seat and maybe takes more of a sixth, seventh man role and doesn't have the opportunity to jack up all the shots that he had. He was the guy that the offense ran through with no one else around him. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to take anything away from Deontay. He's a great player. He was the rock of this team an anchor of the early Cronin era I just think that once you dilute the talent pool that was these teams that he played on, I think he starts to take more of a back role or, or more of a, a two, three type of player as opposed to the one. Fair enough. Our number four, three point shooter since 2000, the man himself, Jaron Cumberland. Oh, gee. Through, through three years, he had 178 three pointers made a 36.3 percentage. 
Hey, John Brandon, give the guy a shot to build on those numbers. Jaron Cumberland can create and knock down shots off the dribble, but he can he also fantastic. do so on the catch and shoot. Easily one of the top four three-point shooters of uh, since 2000. Who's our number three? Sean Kill Patrick. 313 three-pointers made with a 34.7 percentage. His percentage is a little low for a top three guy, but I agree. He was He's tied for number one with Deontay Vaughn in terms of career makes. And like Jaron Cumberland, he could make him off catch and shoot. He could create him on his own. And his, his release was so quick. And the way I, I think it's good to think about it this way. If the ball is pinging around the perimeter and you see it kick to a player who's open in the corner for three, it's an important shot. If we make it, we win the game. Who do you trust? Do you trust Sean Kilpatrick? Absolutely. 30, 34.7% of the time I do. <laughs> no, actually, you bring up a good point there. Sean Kilpatrick literally being in tied for the lead with Deontay Vaughn. Maybe it is not fair for me to give the treatment to Deontay Vaughn because Sean Kilpatrick was also a four-year player, was also on teams that were not talent-loaded, but they made the shots when they got the ball in their hand. So, you know, maybe Deontay Vaughn, maybe, maybe I'm seeing the light. Ah, that a boy. Maybe he's deserving of the fifth spot. It took because you he... 180 seconds to talk yourself out of your Deontay Von take. <laughs> <laughs> I remember... It taught me seeing Sean Kilpatrick. <laughs> I think people know who the final two players on this list are. I'm Do curious they? if they agree who's number one and who's number two. But our number two for best three-point shooter since the year 2000, Field Williams. 262 makes. With a 30, I'm sorry, 262 makes with a 40.1% three point percentage, which is the highest of all the three point shooters on our list. Field Williams, number two. Yeah, once again, that's one of those guys when you're hearing. So I I watched a lot of games, but I listened to a lot of games on the radio. And whenever you hear Dan Horde call Field Williams' name, you got excited. Because you knew something was about to happen, and so whether it was a you know three pointer, whatever it was, Field Williams is definitely deserving of that number two spot. He's the guy you want to get the rock to if you're down by two and you want to win the game. You give the ball to Field Williams anywhere on that perimeter, and he was going to take take a knockdown shot for you. Well, we've heard Terry Nelson say it, we've heard John Brandon say it, but when Javen Cumberland shoots the ball, you expect it to go in. Field Williams epitomizes that as well. Field Williams was the first Bearcat I can remember, you know, of my of my young adult lifetime where when he shot it, I expected that thing to go in the bucket. The only knock on Field Williams is he was always an off-ball player. He never really developed that on-ball ability, never could create his own shot and, and shoot off the dribble. And so he was reliant on other people to create those shots for him, which is why we put... Mr. Steve Logan as our number one overall three-point shooter since 2000 and probably ever, to be honest with you. Steve Logan made 258 three-point shots. Whoa, 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 whoa. 37.8%. Do not, do not freaking dampen the Steve Logan hype. This is the best three-point shooter since 2000 for the Bearcats. And since like I said, probably ever. ever. Probably ever. Nick Van Axel, get out of here. 
Steve Logan's a better shooter than Nick Van Exel. Seriously. Seriously. No. Steve Logan, I I know that he started his career prior to the year 2000, but the amount of threes and big shots this guy made while a Bearcat, he was devastating from the perimeter, could do it off the dribble, obviously could do it off ball too. He was critical to that 99-2000 team that Kenyon Martin led. Steve Logan, easily the best three-point shooter in Cincinnati Bearcats history when you factor in the variety of ways he could actually do it. He wasn't a one-trick pony like Field Williams. I still don't agree with you on ever. (laughs) Numbers don't lie, my friend. Numbers don't lie. Ladies and gentlemen, Coomer declares it. Steve Logan, very good. Definitely deserving of our number one spot for the 2000. We are going to definitely hit that later on with the ever comment because I'm not agreeing with that. (laughs) What else do we have to talk about today, Hummer? Today, we have, this one was near and dear to my hearts, ladies and gentlemen. Not often do we get to talk about upsets that are just so egregious, so satisfying to watch that. I called my own father, I think around 1030 and said, Dad, turn on the Kentucky game. And my dad looks and he says to me, why the hell would I turn on a Kentucky game? I'm like, because they're about to lose to Evansville. And look, guys, I am sick and tired of hearing about UC being on the wrong side of these historic upsets. So today, we're going to finish up this podcast by talking about our favorite, our favorite upsets where UC was on the winning side of history. Today, we're going to start with one of my favorites, number five. January 1st, 2012, Cronin's first road win against a ranked team came at Pittsburgh, ranked number 22. It was a big win of the season. It would see the Cats pull off eight upsets of ranked teams. Coomer, who's your number four? So one of my, I don't necessarily have this as a ranking because I can't, there's so many times that we're the favorite for these for as the team playing right like this is i i'm used to being the big dog on campus i'm used for i'm used to the little the little mid-major teams like norwood coming after us and and hanging their hat on big monumental upsets so i'm not necessarily used to recalling when we're upsetting teams but i do know that one of my favorite upsets came when uc defeated number two syracuse in the semifinals of the Big East Tournament, 71-68, Madison Square Garden, Syracuse, a legendary college basketball program. The Big East Tournament, the stage was incredible. An unbelievable upset. Easily one of the best wins we experienced during the Cronin era, if not the best win, honestly. It really might be the best win of the entire Mick Cronin uh, tenure. Just an incredible feeling seeing us go to the finals that year in the Big East tournament. And that is a Big East that is far different from the Big East today. That conference was unbelievably loaded. And so to make a run to the Big East tournament finals like we did, and to do it by beating a team of of the caliber of Syracuse, truly incredible. Not only that, you got to go back and look at the other teams we had to beat to get to that final too. 
Notre, we had to beat a Notre Dame late in the season. We had to beat a Pittsburgh. We had Villanova's. You had Syracuse. You had Georgetown. You had a ton of teams. I think that year, and I don't, I don't know this for a fact. So, whatever this, if it's true or not, but I want to say it was seven or eight teams from the Big East made the made the uh, the dance that year, and you still see that sometimes today. But that conference was just absolutely loaded. It brings me to, and I agree, these aren't necessarily rankings. But one of these is above them all. Uh, but number three comes in, and UC defeats number 19 Villanova, 69 to 66. This came in 2008. It was the first Cronin win against a ranked opponent. So it kicked off his era. It came in front of a very loud, energized Fifth Third Arena crowd. A very good win for Cincinnati. A a season that didn't see a lot of well, we success. just weren't, we weren't a, yeah we weren't a great team at that point, and Cronin was still rebuilding the program. I remember that win vividly because I was at the game, and what happened after the game I don't remember much of, as I was introduced <laughs> personally to Long Island iced teas for the first time, and uh, now I don't drink them. So uh, I agree. I was maybe ex- you should. <laughs> that was an exceptional victory for the Cats. Uh, one I definitely won't forget. That that occurred actually in 2008. I'm not sure if you mentioned that. Yes, we did. Okay. My next upset that I, I remember loving in the moment was when UC went on the road and defeated Bob Huggins' West Virginia Mountaineers 62-39. to This was back in 2008. It was Mick Cronin's second season with the Bearcats, which anyone who's followed the Bearcats during that time remembers that was not a good basketball team. We did not have high expectations yet. We continually had to run through the gauntlet of the big East, but this was an absolute beatdown of the former coach of the Cincinnati Bearcats. One who we all are well aware that the fan base had a really hard time letting go of. And he went into, into uh, West Virginia and absolutely annihilated them on their home court. Um, easily, um, the way I would look at it is it's a it's a win that really set the tone for what Cronin would go on to build over his 13 years with the Cats. Go ahead. And num- go at ahead. Number one. This one is only done justice. And ESPN celebrating 25 years of college hoops. Time to flash back to the archives. Coaches are asking themselves is what do you have to do to beat Duke? A break for Cincinnati. Melvin Levitt. Avery hustling down, gets it off and hit it! <laughs> These two teams are bumping and grinding. Avery deep into the corner, picks it up and in! Time the game! Three seconds left. Kenyon Martin. Levin! Oh, Stand! Cincinnati, the champions of the 1998 Great Alaska Shootout. Beautiful. Beautiful 1998 Great Alaskan Shootout. Number one, Duke versus number 14, your lovely Cincinnati Bearcats. If I'm not mistaken, we were the only team to defeat Duke that year until the national championship game where they ultimately ended up losing to UConn. Might have been the only time I ever was rooting for Duke in a final because I definitely wanted to see that one loss next to their national championship, knowing that it was us who delivered it. Uh, 
by far one of my favorite games. I watch that game every year. Definitely has to be in my my number one spot for my favorite upset as a UC basketball fan. Easily. It's, it's every Bearcat fan's favorite upset because that Duke team was absolutely loaded. Elton Brand, William Avery, Trajan Langdon, Shane Battier. The list goes on and on. That team was remarkable in its talent level, but they could not be outdone by Kenyon, by Fletcher, by Levitt. Just a beautiful, beautiful victory. Before we wrap this podcast up, Harmer, I did do some clicking around on our old friend Ken Palm's website, and I, I noticed there's some interesting statistical trends year over year that might be worth pointing out. It's only a three-game sample size. It's definitely not the end-all, be-all. But one specific... Better ele- competition, though. One element of this of this gameplay in particular I wanted to point out is what we're doing at the three-point line, both offensively and defensively. Given our talk about the top 10 three-point shooters since 2000, this is more than appropriate. But in 2019, we were one of the worst teams in the country in terms of the percentage of opponents' shots that were three-point shots. Of field goals attempted, opposing teams shot nearly 43% of their shots from the three-point line. All this tells me is that it was not one of Mick Cronin's priorities to move the team off the three-point line. We were more than happy giving up those shots, and anybody who remembered the first-round exit against Iowa knows that we certainly did not guard the three-point line very well. We ranked 300th in the country last year in terms of uh, three-point shot distribution from the opponent. This season... Interesting. Interesting that, that, that that's the... You wouldn't have probably have thought that if you weren't looking at the stats, you probably would have never thought that that's where the weakness of the Cats was. But then when you think back and look at the eye test of all the games, the big games that you lost, it was because of the three ball. Yeah, I mean, if you're watching the games... You probably, it really is confirming what you saw with your eyes. We consistently gave up really good performances on the three-point line to opposing teams. And I wanted to make one more note about that. Teams shot 35.5% from the three-point line, which is a pretty high number. That was one of the, we were giving up a really high percentage to teams as well. So we're giving up a lot of threes and we're giving up a good percentage from three. This year, we've dropped that number to where teams are only shooting 33% of their shots from three-point line now. That's one of the best numbers in the country. We are 82nd best in the country, so we've completely reversed course. We're chasing teams off the three-point line. We're not giving them as many three-point shots. And when they do take those three-point shots, they're only hitting at a 25.4% clip, which is 36th best in the country. We don't know if these numbers will hold, but what we can see is strategically, John Brandon's defensive style is completely different than Mick Cronin, at least when it comes to the three-point line. John Brandon has his team chasing players off the three-point line to take more inefficient shots, maybe from mid-range, ideally. And when they do take three-point shots, we're doing a much better job uh, contesting, and their percentage has dramatically dipped year over year. Obviously, it's only three games, We'll, we'll, we'll continue tracking this type of information as the season goes on, but it is interesting to see, and I like it because teams are putting much more of an emphasis on the offensive end in terms of getting three-point shots up. You see it with the Bearcats ourselves, and if we're more effectively guarding that, that component of the offense, 
we're going to be better for it long term and we're not going to be as disrupted by a team like Iowa who builds their entire offense around three-point shooting. I wonder if it's because of uh, Brandon made a comment that he he doesn't use switches as much as the previous regime. So I wonder if other teams were targeting the switches to get better matchups on the three-point line, uh, creating those mitch matches, mitch, mix matches uh, on the three-point line as opposed to looking for them maybe down low on post-play. Uh, I wonder if that's a, a symptom of just a different style of defense there. Yeah, we played a lot more zone last year, which can leave you open to giving up three-point shots. And John Brandon has guys early in the season chasing around screens, avoiding switching at all costs, and it kind of is that old-school, just guard-your-man mentality. And so far, it's been successful. Now, it's only three games. Uh, There's been a wide variance of quality of opponent, but it is a very interesting sign early on to just see how defensively our, our shot distribution is changing year over year. Offensively, If you look at us last year, we shot 34.5% from the three-point line, which wasn't terrible. It's probably, it's about average across college basketball. But we only shot a third of our shots from three-point range, which was, again, 304th in the country. Mick Cronin, we all know, did not play a style of ball that focused on the three-point shot. We just discussed earlier that Justin Jennifer, as a 44% three-point shooter, did not shoot a lot of those. And... And honestly, it's a more modern style of ball to put emphasis on the three-point shot. Well, this season, we're now seeing 39.4% of our shots come from three-point range, which is 135th in the country. We are only making right now 31.9. So our percentage has dipped. Early season, there's not a ton of credibility, but trend-wise, we're shooting more and we're putting more of a focus on making sure our offense is getting our three-point shot off. Well, let's also take notice, too, that if you're going back to 2018, 2017, 2016, you're going to see similar similar numbers under the Cronin era where we're probably expecting under under the Brandon era to see. I think we're probably actually wanting to see more than 39 percent of our shots from three, to be honest. But I, I definitely think he's expecting that range to be 35, 36 percent is what his his probably is end target is, you know, if not higher. So right. I, I don't think they're hitting their goals yet. We And I think Ohio State honestly is skewing these numbers as an outlier considering the fact that we shot 25% in that game alone. Yeah, I like looking at it more as like a style of play indicator because we make or miss shots over three games. There could be a, a ton of variance, but it's clear that John Brandon is shifting the style of play. That's probably enough nerding out on numbers. It can be tough to listen we to. We can nerd off on the numbers, but I do I do want to point out one thing that watching some of those games that I was hearing some people talk about telling saying, you know, I was, I was taking a, a a gander on Twitter and people were saying stop shooting the three ball, stop shooting the three ball. No. No. Continue shooting the three ball. This team will win more games shooting the three ball than by trying to play low post ball. That is a For sure. fact. That is a fact. That is not an opinion. That is fact. Yes. We are, we're no. a better team by letting it loose, and that's even with players who aren't elite three-point shooters. I imagine John Brandon will continue to recruit a profile of player who better fits his style of offense, which means we'll get more shooters, and we'll, we'll see our percentages go up. But even in the meantime, with average to slightly below average three-point shooters like Chris McNeil or Keith Williams— when that ball swings to them and they're open for three, we've said it before, let it loose. 
don't take it into the paint where it's crowded, where you're going to get contested, where you are more likely to potentially turn the ball over or get called for an offensive foul. Shoot the ball in rhythm. Take the open shot. Our team and our offense is better for it. Lastly, Hummer, this week, we're in paradise. You, my well, friend. I'm in paradise. You're in paradise. <laughs> you and your beautiful wife have two tickets to paradise where you'll be watching the Cats firsthand in St. Thomas. On Friday, we play Illinois State. On Sunday, we're going to play the winner of Western Kentucky and Bowling Green, which if you go based on Ken Palm ratings only, Western Kentucky would be the favorite in that game. And then on Monday, after we after we win those first two games, which we know we're going to do. Redemption. Our championship game against the Ken Palm favorite of Nevada. That's what we expect. If not them, it's likely going to be a team like Valparaiso. Not the biggest names in the world, but a fun tournament nonetheless. We're going to have you in St. Thomas firsthand reporting as our own Cincy Slang and Bearcat basketball podcast correspondent. How excited are you? It's going to be a great day to be a Cincinnati Bearcat basketball fan. <laughs> As always, my friend. It's that time, Hummer, where it's time to dedicate the podcast to one of our favorite Bearcats. And I think today it's going to be a true legend. Who you got? So This is, this is my personal favorite. Uh, in my office, I have a picture of this, of this player. He's, he's hands at the hips. He's, he's looking, you know, very regal. Uh, his name is Danny Fortson, and what guy's an absolute UC legend. But the reason we're choosing him today is because we've just listed our top ten best three-point shooters. He didn't make a single three-point shot in his entire career, yet is still number five on the all-time scoring list. He had an unbelievable career with the Bearcats. Unbelievable. Top five career scorer. He did it in three years. He was an un- He was a monster rebounding the ball. And one of my favorite Fortson highlights actually occurred in one of his first seasons in the NBA. He, I shouldn't say one of his first seasons. He was about a four or five year vet at that point. But in 2002, he's playing with the Golden State Warriors. He's already developing a reputation as kind of one of the enforcers of the league. But that 2002 Lakers team featured the most unstoppable force in basketball history, which was Shaquille O'Neal. Danny Fortson did not hesitate in trying to throw Shaquille O'Neal to the ground and was successful in antagonizing the other team. Um, He was uh, quite the heckler from the sideline as well. I'll put the clip uh, on on our Twitter page. As always, follow us at Cincy Slangin'. And you can email us, cincyslangin at gmail.com. Danny Fortson was just a a remarkable force for the Bearcats and a fun NBA player to call. What what did he say? What did he call him? (laughs) Did he say, you're a beep? This is a family-friendly podcast, my friend. Beep, 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 beep. But Danny Fortson, we thoroughly enjoyed your career with the Bearcats. Thank you for all you've done for the Cincinnati basketball program. This episode is for you, sir. Cheers. Cheers, my friend.